Hello, listeners. I'm Steve Torrens with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Amjo Hall, speaks with Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle about issues in municipal housing and climate policy and how to move the needle on both these crises at the city level. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. We have very special guests. City Councilor Christine Boyle has joined us this week. Thank you for joining us, Christine. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Em. Uh, Christine, maybe we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Sure. So I am a first-term city councillor in Vancouver. I've been in this role three years. I am elected with a party called One City Vancouver and have spent the last three years really focused on uh, the intersections of climate action and climate justice and housing and transportation, how our climate action can address rather than worsen inequality, and then also, you know, all of the huge amount of work that needs to continue to be done in addressing the drug poisoning crisis happening here and elsewhere. So I'm I'm a newish politician or elected leader. I come into this work with an organizing background, have spent most of my adult life doing uh, justice organizing, some of that as an ordained minister uh, and organizing among faith communities locally and nationally on climate justice and Indigenous rights issues. And I continue to want to be an organizer before being a politician, though I certainly wear both of those hats in uh, in the work I'm doing these days. Christine, when you think about the, the various things that the city does for making sure the garbage and recycling get picked up on time to rezoning and development, which are, you know, often contentious um, issues in a city that has an affordability crisis like Vancouver does, you know, different claims on what the future might be for the city, let alone its past and present. And wondering what is it about this level of government that uh, got you motivated to run in the first place, as opposed to, say, um, running provincially or, or federally? I have always been a big nerd for local government. It really is where so many of our values hit the ground for people, um, you know, in our day-to-day lives. And I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for progressive change at the local level. And so I was keen to be engaged in that. I've been engaged in local politics uh, and local issues for quite a while. Uh, And I'm glad to see local governments leading on so many issues that I care about and really moving the needle and adding pressure at other levels. And uh, I certainly try to do that work. I get accused of or I get told to stay in my lane all of the time. And I never intended to focus only on garbage pickup, though that's important. Those core services are important in people's lives, too. They're important in you know, issues around labor and the environment, all of these big things we care about um, are lived out in those core services and what we do beyond them in terms of reflecting who the city is for. So yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big nerd for local government. That's why I'm here and I don't regret it. 
So prior to becoming a counselor, what are some uh, entanglements or interactions that you had with city policy that you first kind of got involved in in civic policy uh, prior to elected life? You know, housing is a huge one, uh, absolutely, and and public and active transportation as well. I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up uh, on the west side of Vancouver in a neighborhood that I moved from when I was 18, but would never have been able to afford to stay in had that been my hope. And so I have lived in a number of parts of the city. I care a lot about Vancouver and I've seen I've seen neighborhoods hollow out because people are priced out. And then I've seen the impact that that has on pressures in previously working class neighborhoods where residents are getting pushed further out. You know, the, just the ripple effect um, of uh, housing decisions, you know, the sort of protectionism and e- exclusivity of some neighborhoods and how that impacts other neighborhoods. And we see it playing out all the way beyond the city of Vancouver. You know, I hear from renters in Roberts Creek or in the Fraser Valley uh, or on Vancouver Island where the cost of living is going up and more and more people priced out of Vancouver are pricing than pricing other people out in other places. So I, I grew up in the city and I've seen all of those changes happen. And um, so I've been engaged in all of those those housing issues for many years. Um, but really climate has been my focus. And there's a lot of ways that climate hits the ground in the city. And, you know, we all live them every day. So I'm sure we'll get into many of those. But that has been my activism hasn't always been focused at the local level. Um, my activism has been a lot larger, but I see the tangible ways that the more progressive local action can be of service to those movements. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe let's begin with the city of Vancouver and how it's looking towards climate change and sort of the policy environment at the municipal level. Oftentimes people are calling on the federal and provincial governments for policy change, which is, of course, really important. Uh, but there are a set of policy levers that the the city engages in, which it can do a lot of things uh, autonomously without those levels of government still have a big impact related to reducing climate emissions. I'm wondering if you could speak to how you're uh, approaching these questions and thinking them through at the policy level, like what are the practical interventions that can happen at the at the city level? That's a great question. So Vancouver was the first municipality in English-speaking Canada to declare a climate emergency. That was uh, one of the first motions that I brought forward. And we unanimously passed a pretty ambitious climate emergency action plan, which looked very specifically at what we can do in our jurisdiction. So people may or may not know the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the city of Vancouver are uh, in transportation, in the gas that we burn getting around, um, and in buildings. And 54%, something like 54% of emissions in Vancouver are from the burning of natural gas for heat, space heating and hot water in our buildings. So there are very specific municipal tools that we can use to get at those largest sources of emissions. Absolutely. All of it would be easier if we had more ambitious movement at the provincial or federal level. 
In the meantime, in Vancouver, we have been looking at changes to our building code and regulatory tools to get new buildings off of gas, to have new buildings, low density and multifamily buildings built electric without gas um, and you know, more and more passive house standard as well. So we're using less energy overall, but the energy that we're using is zero emission. We're looking at how we retrofit existing buildings, which is a huge piece of work and a sticky one when when we're approaching this work with a with a lens of equity and inequality. How are we there? You know, it's it's different, a different set of requirements for a financially stable homeowner in a single family home to require that when their gas furnace dies, they transition it to a heat pump. It's a more complicated policy challenge when we're looking at privately owned uh, rental housing, for instance, where we are very cautious. The requirements to fuel switch a building like that to get it off gas uh, could trigger a type of renovation that allows a landlord to evict tenants um, and causes displacement. So we are being cautious uh, and thoughtful in how we bring about those sorts of requirements. And actually, we're doing some pilot projects around it to see what uh, we can learn in terms of timelines and processes for transitioning existing rental building in a way that doesn't displace tenants or increase rents. So, um, but a lot of tools that we have in the city of Vancouver to be doing that work. Um, And on the transportation side, you know, again, we need help from the provincial and federal government and we need funding support in order to be as ambitious as the climate emergency requires us to be. Um, But there is a lot we can do. One of my favorite examples on transportation is um, because land use is one of our greatest powers as a local government. We're looking at how we create and where we can create bus priority lanes to uh, give more of our road space to public transit so that buses are faster and more reliable. Um, And when buses are faster, it for a for a transit rider, the experience is that they're coming more frequently because they're not stuck behind people's cars and traffic. So there are things we can do, even though we as a local government don't fund or control transit, we do control the allocation of our road space. And so when we prioritize public transit on our road space, it makes it seem as if that public transit is coming more frequently. And that's one of the one of the key things we of course hear from people is that they would be more likely to take public transit if it were faster and more reliable. So again, there, there's, you know, and and the same is true about reallocating road space for more pedestrian safety, for more separated, uh, accessible cycling infrastructure. Those are, a, a lot of those are land use decisions around how we're allocating our transportation space. And then they're capital funding decisions about what infrastructure we're putting in place and what sort of road users it is benefiting the most. And when you think about, oftentimes it gets presented as a very polarizing issue inside uh, the media, but uh, in 10 or 15 years after bike lanes go up, they 
they certainly are viewed as quite uh, popular. And uh, but you know uh, beyond you know parking policy, congestion charges, various uh, forms and interventions. What are other cities that you look to for policy inspiration? Like when you see people in cities um, uh, across the planet that have put progressive policies in in place that are facts in the ground right now. Uh, where do you draw inspiration from in terms of thinking through what a policy framework in Vancouver might look like? You know, on the transportation front, there are there are a ton of great examples in Europe and in and across many large cities in Asia where road space is being reallocated. I think about uh, a lot of the work Barcelona has been doing, creating super blocks and more protected public space, really boldly shifting the understanding of street space back to people and away from cars. Um, and I, I have really liked, I, I think this, I saw this language out of the New York Department of Transportation, but it but it could have been them borrowing it elsewhere, but thinking about cars as guests in more of our road spaces that that space is for people to gather and to move around um, and that when cars are there, they they are required to go slower and be cautious of the people around them rather than having all of those people need to operate around streets in fear of cars. Uh, you know, I certainly think about that as a, a parent of kids who can sometimes get uh, distracted and I worry a lot about them around around cars. So Barcelona, but many other places, you know, even like Paris is being incredibly ambitious in its goals and its very uh, tangible changes around deprioritizing cars uh, and creating a lot more safe cycling infrastructure across the city. There's been some amazing examples through the pandemic of uh, local governments really ramping up their plans on that front. Uh, you know, the, the other piece I didn't really touch on, but is absolutely a, a climate and a justice issue is land use. And there are also a number of local governments, particularly across the states, who are starting to make citywide land use decisions that are climate and justice decisions, too. So Minneapolis was one of the first places that this has uh, rolled out Minneapolis pretty boldly in a citywide plan ended exclusionary zoning or single family zoning. So they they made it legal to build apartments in all parts of the city. There was no neighborhood that was sort of too precious or too valuable for renters to have secure housing there, which is, of course, a justice issue. And coming out of Minneapolis, some of it was overturning land use and planning decisions that had been intentionally racist and exclusionary in their origin. So they had that piece of their land use to to correct. Um, I say it's a climate decision too, because in cities, um, we need more people to be able to live in complete communities, live near their work, live near you know, their grocery store and their hairdresser and whatnot, and be less reliant on cars. And when we uh, don't have enough housing for people in the city. It pushes up the price of all of the housing we do have, but it also means more and more people are living further and further out and relying on long commutes, often uh, often burning a lot of fossil fuels to do that. So land use hasn't historically been part of our climate work. And, and I, I'm a longtime climate organizer. I've 
been focused on opposing the expansion of big fossil fuel projects. That's absolutely important. And now with a city councillor hat on, I'm thinking more and more about how land use is a corrective tool in historic uh, exclusion and injustice, but also a proactive tool in building more climate resilient communities. With the climate talks happening uh, currently in Glasgow, what's your hope and wish of what might come out of there in terms of what it might mean for uh, municipalities and, and you know, possibly federal and provincial policies that would enable municipalities to do their work better related to the climate? Yeah, great question. I wish I had a more hopeful response about the COP in Glasgow. Um, I was a civil society delegate at COP21 in Paris six years ago, and I it made me cynical uh, about the impact of these global meetings. I mean, I am heartened to see the the media coverage, increasing media coverage of climate, mostly. And I, of course, am desperately hopeful that, that this COP be worthwhile and more worthwhile than some of the past ones have been. You know, overall, what we at a local level need is for provincial and federal governments to be uh, treating climate change like the emergency that it is and putting in place emergency level policy. So much of what we are trying to do at the at the city level in Vancouver is push the bounds of what is required uh, ramp up dates. You know, we're trying to get buildings off gas like next year, not 2030 or 2040. We wouldn't need to fight so hard on those fronts if that leadership were being provided at another level and we could partner with them and work with them. You know, there are dates being set at provincial and federal levels to get off gas, to end the sale of gas combustion vehicles and whatnot. All of those dates are too far out for the scale of the crisis. And so at a local level, we need those plans to be emergency plans. We need those dates to all be sped up. And then we need either new fiscal tools or, you know, federal transfers. I mean, then the types of investments that we need to be making to be mitigating, you know, to be getting off gas and mitigating worse climate change, but also adapting to the uh, climate changes that we're already experiencing are out of scope with the fiscal tools that we have at a city level. We only have a flat property tax and we just aren't able to raise the revenue that we need to be adequately addressing this crisis. So we need help on that front uh, as well. And we have been asking for more fiscal tools for a long time. I think there's a awareness of just what a disaster we're facing in terms of inadequate infrastructure and not the tools for it. But we have yet to see real changes in terms of any of those fiscal pieces. And it really does hamper what we're able to do. So I, you know, I, I sort of scream into the wind with frustration. I mean, occasionally, often, but occasionally on this subject, which is cities get lifted up and celebrated by the federal government, by provincial governments for leading on climate. But when we say, actually, these are the things we need in order to lead on climate, we aren't getting the tools and supports that would allow us to really make the difference that we need to make at the speed and scale that's needed. Uh, Christina, I want to talk a bit about the intractable issue of affordable housing in Vancouver. I've been in Vancouver over 30 years now, and I moved down from Williams Lake to go to university. And uh, this has been 
an issue that's been talked about far before I moved to, to Vancouver. And, you know, there's been, you know, structural issues at, at play from, um, you know, uh, not having election spending limits in place as forms of regulatory capture that happened in terms of development decisions that were made, you know, large mega events like Expo 86 and the Olympics, which exacerbated and accelerated development paths uh, in a way where public policy uh, wasn't in place to protect residents from being evicted. And uh, many of those structural barriers remain in place. In a city with such a big affordability crisis, the protection of tenants still remains um, inadequate, uh, even though that's mostly a provincial responsibility. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the challenges this council has gone through thinking about housing and and how you've approached it from a policy intervention point of view. Yeah, great question. So this council has uh, strengthened our own tenant protection policies, particularly around renovation and redevelopment, and a huge amount of credit for those changes is owed to tenants themselves organizing across the city and, and pushing for strengthened protections against dem eviction and renoviction. So we have strengthened our own protections on those fronts. They still could be stronger, I think, and that's an ongoing conversation. But we made some important changes. And again, um, because of the advocacy of, of tenant groups, we have been trying to build, you know, some of the challenge in Vancouver has been that we have been building for-profit housing, a lot of it stratified condo housing for so long. So we have been trying to tip that balance in favor of building more secure rental housing than um, private investment housing. Still, I think the, the piece we need a lot more of is housing outside of the market. You know, we need more co-op housing, we need more nonprofit and public and non-market housing. Um, the housing market in Vancouver and beyond is clearly broken. I don't think you will find a lot of argument uh, with that. And so we need tools to be building more housing outside. We need to change the balance of the housing that we are building within the market and change where it's being built. And that's where I get into land use and zoning changes. Um, so the so the where we're building new market rental, we're we're not just building it at the expense of and destruction of existing market rental. We're building it, we're protecting existing rental and building new rental in neighborhoods where historically renters have been excluded. And we need a lot more non-market housing. And, and I have had many, many conversations with uh, folks across the community housing sector in Vancouver, um, across the labor movement, trying to figure out how we increase the city's role in the development of public and non-market housing. One piece that the city can do and that we do some of is providing publicly owned land at a nominal lease for nonprofit or co-op housing uh, I had a motion to Vancouver Council to upzone for non-market housing and allow more floors, allow more density for housing that is co-op or non-profit housing. Uh, this council killed it, uh, voted against it, which was frustrating because we know we need more of that housing. So I will continue to work on that front. I sometimes 
described these as the three pillars. And, you know, it, it is true that there's no silver bullet to the affordability and housing problems that are so entrenched in Vancouver and really are a reflection of a kind of global capital hunger um, and greed. Uh, but but locally, I think about a, f- a few specific tools we need to be moving on altogether. And one of them is increased tenant protections. And one of them is zoning and ending exclusionary zoning. Uh, and one of them is building more non-market housing everywhere across the city. And so I have, in my three years so far, been trying to work on all three of those at the same time. There are sometimes fights between advocates of one or the other of those solutions, that their solution is the most important. And even in progressive circles and um certainly in housing Twitter in Vancouver, there are, I think, harmful fights between camps about what the solution is. And um, and there are very good people working in those different camps trying to move solutions forward. And ultimately, I think we need a progressive um, housing plan that includes all of these pieces and, and more. And so I'm glad in my term so far to have been able to work with folks across each of those pieces and be able to move the issue forward in a few ways, though, again, wish this council was being more uh, courageous on housing. And I hope the next council that we elect a year from now is braver on all of those fronts together. There's been some specificities to the challenge that the city faces caused by the pandemic. And I want to just uh, begin with the issue of the contamination of the drug supply, which uh, precedes the pandemic. It was already crisis in many respects, but certainly heightened and accelerated with border restrictions and others, and has had a a huge uh, impact in terms of the increase of the the numbers of deaths across the province, but most prevalently in the downtown east side, but also in other parts of Vancouver as well. I wonder if you could speak to um, how the city has been attempting to uh, address this issue from its own vantage point, you know, understanding that the provincial and federal governments are uh, required uh, to move on this in a much more fundamental way as a lot of the policy levers rest with them. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of our work as a city on this front has been on the advocacy front, really, you know, writing letters and pushing and fighting uh, in all sorts of ways. The city of Vancouver has been advocating for decriminalization for a citywide exemption um, in order for us to implement decriminalization of personal possession of drugs. Council unanimously, uh, I think it was unanimous, uh, supported the Dolph application for Compassion Compassion Club model. Um, We have been pushing the provincial government for a, a more ambitious rollout of safe supply. Uh, So, all of those advocacy tools really coming to us from people who use drugs and and drug user advocacy groups saying this is what's needed um, and then the city can use our you know pulpit so to speak to amplify those asks and push for changes at the provincial and federal level and then alongside that doing as much as we can on the harm reduction front just to keep people alive as as best as possible while we advocate for these big systemic changes that we absolutely need. Um, So we uh, have been, we approved a new 
overdose prevention site in Yale Town a year or two ago. My sense of time is really skewed now. Um, it, it was not a smooth or easy decision, but glad to see those spaces being created for people. Um, there are roles that we play in terms of grants and funding for uh, frontline service organizations and advocates in order, again, to really be supporting um, people, meeting them where they're at and helping keep them alive while we roll out the larger solutions um, that we that we need the provincial and federal government to be moving on. Yeah, there's been a, a big impact on uh, city budgets from the pandemic. Also have a lot of storefronts and small business that have gone away um, during the, the pandemic for financial and other reasons. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the economic outlook of the city coming out of the pandemic and some of the revenue challenges the city uh, might be facing as to what might be a way of um, addressing and dealing with things on those fronts. Yeah, it's such a great question and um, is really what I am in the middle of wrestling with right now. The city approves its budget in December of each year, and the outlook for our 2022 budget is bleak. Our finances were hit very hard because of the pandemic. We, in, in the early days of the pandemic, the city had to temporarily lay off 1,800 workers. That was... Uh, very difficult for those folks and a difficult decision to be making. We have been slowly recovering um, in terms of revenue and we have been trying to balance the right, you know, because our main fiscal tool is a flat property tax. I think all of us are very conscious that what a blunt instrument that is um, and the pressure that it places particularly on small businesses that are already struggling. So we know we need to fund strong public services because residents across the city who are most vulnerable re rely on those public services, uh, you know, public libraries and community centers and grant community grants and so much more. And because they are people's jobs, people who live in our communities, and there are some limits to property tax as our only fiscal tool. So, I mean, this is why I hammer on and on about the need for new uh, fiscal tools for local governments to meet the challenges that we are facing, because those limits are so real. Um, you know, in the meantime, the balance for our next budget is going to need to be really about resisting austerity uh, and preventing layoffs and further cuts, um, and then making some pretty difficult choices about what new initiatives we are investing in. And I certainly am going into this budget strongly advocating for uh, for funding for the city's work on implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. There are a number of key issues that I have been championing along the way that I will fight for hard in this budget, uh, a bunch of investments around climate and safe transportation as well. But with a minority council and a very squeezed budget and a lot of competing priorities, it's going to be hard. And we do need help from senior levels of government if we're going to truly be able to follow through on all of these asks that the public have of us uh, and priorities that we would like to be addressing. Uh, Christine, what are you most excited about going into next year on, on council? Oh, great question. Um, 
You know, I have been, I'm co-chairing our um, UNDRIP United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Task Force. I co-chair it with Kul Salem from the Squamish Nation. Um, I'm really excited about that work. The Obviously, the province and the feds have been looking at implementing UNDRIP as well and moving along their own processes. The city of Vancouver is really leading from a municipal level in terms of what a recognition of those rights looks like at a local level. Um, we have an amazing collection of leaders from Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations at that table together. Uh, and those recommendations will come out some in the spring and then some next fall. And I'm excited about that work. I will say, you know, I have some ongoing despair about the scale of the climate crisis, but I also am regularly lifted up by the advocacy and leadership that I hear from the community on that front. And so I always look forward to getting to work alongside those folks when we have difficult climate decisions. That's my favorite part of the work is when I get to be one piece of organizing and social movement work from the community where I can help and and play my role. And and that's why I think it matters that we elect strong voices, but but those voices can't do it alone. So um, on climate, on a number of housing decisions, uh, housing decisions for renters and co-op and non-market housing in particular, all of that, I uh, it sounds so cheesy, but I really um, do feel so honored to get to be at the table to amplify those community voices and to help lay out in, in policy tools that can make this city uh, work for more people and allow more people to stay um, and continue to call it home. So all of that matters a lot to me. And the last thing I would add to that question is we have an election coming up next fall and we have some really inspiring folks uh, interested in running with one city. And so I've been working with a bunch of them behind the scenes um, as they get ready to make announcements and I'm excited about that because I think it matters who's at the table. And these three years have been been a tiny bit lonely uh, and exhausting. Um, and being the only one city voice there, of course, you know, there are folks at the table I work well with across parties and there's been lots of collaboration and I'm thankful for that. But I also am looking forward to helping get more one city voices elected and get to uh, sit around the table with them. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add, Christine? Oh, um, I feel like we could talk about a dozen more topics and I would love all of it, but just really appreciate the, the chance to dig into each of these topics and, and knowing what an engaged listenership you have. I, you know, I, I'm sure there are folks pushing us on all of these topics. Keep pushing us. We need those of us in elected office need you to be advocating that we do better and pushing us to do better makes a real difference. Christine, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Being a city councillor is not easy work in a complex place like Vancouver. So thank you for the work uh, that you do. And thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. Thanks for having me on. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Christine Boyle. Head to the show notes to read up on some of the initiatives and examples mentioned in this episode. 
Thanks for listening and tune in Tuesdays for more Below the Radar.